Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Um, Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the, the common grace of air conditioning that at least keeps things cooler than what they are outside right now. We pray that... That, um, that you would keep people safe in this heat over this weekend, and um, as the weather looks like it's going to break this upcoming week, um, we, we thank you for that as well. We, we are grateful that, that you know us and see us, that you understand what we walk through in our lives, and that your word can speak directly into our lives, and so we pray today that you would do that. that I pray particularly for those who have come into this place <clears throat> facing some hard circumstances with storms that have been raging and swirling, that, that you would bring clarity in the midst of that and bring hope and bring life. And so we lift this time to you and ask that you would move by your spirit. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, well, as I mentioned, we are in this last section of the book of Acts, seeing how the story continues, watching and focusing on the Apostle Paul and his life, and, 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 the, and particularly Luke, our author, was an eyewitness to, these, to this section of the, of the book, and so it's his account of what he experienced and saw, and today we come to Acts chapter 27. So if you have a Bible, you can open it there with me. We're, um, it'll also be on the screen behind me. Um, Acts chapter 27 details an account of a, a journey toward Rome, which we know Paul has been on, but it also looks at some, things didn't go as planned on this journey, let me just say that, that if you signed up for the cruise that Paul, and he was a prisoner, so it wasn't like he was on a cruise ship, but if you signed up for this, um, you'd want a rebate, because it, it is not a good time sailing for this, this crew. And so it helps us, though, because it's a long text that we're going to read tonight, but it, I think it's a compelling story. It's packed with details and a highly detailed account of what happened, and it, it ultimately of a storm that they encountered, two weeks lost at sea, and a shipwreck that happened along the way. For us, I think this is helpful, because for some of you, you've felt this experience, and you're like, maybe not an actual shipwreck, but, but things don't always go how we want them to go. I mean, for you, how is the summer going, or even this weekend? Like, has everything gone as you mapped it and according to your plans so far this summer? I mean, we have three kids, and so summertime, we always look ahead to during the school year and think, okay, we're almost there. Once we get to summertime, we'll just be able to relax, hang out with our kids, everything's going to be fun, we're going to plan some vacations that will be life-changing memories for them, that will just be joy every day, we'll be able to, everyone will be on the same page, we won't have to fight with anybody, and that is never how the summer goes with children. Um, and, and so, it, 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 but even bigger than that, like, think back this year. Do you remember back in January, many of you might, may have made some New Year's resolutions? Sorry to bring that up. How are those going? Maybe some of you are like, I don't do New Year's resolutions. That's fine. At some point, you should assess your life and come up with some goals. <laughs> New Year's is just a convenient time for it. But the thing is that we can't control the circumstances around us, and sometimes it feels like the winds are, are, standing, are blowing against us, like there are unpredictable changes that make us go, go off course and take a different course. Sometimes it's bad decisions that we make. Sometimes it's bad decisions that other people make, and we suffer the consequences for it. And so all of this today, we're helped because in this text we see that when things don't go as we plan them, God is still sovereign. 
And so in Acts chapter 27, this is what we read. Now, the Apostle Paul had been into the city of Jerusalem. He had gone through five different rounds of trials and questioning, and he appealed to Caesar. And so this is what we read. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship, the Adramidium, which was, about, which was to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends to be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. And there, this, a, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along, with, along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which is the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because of even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more, to t more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter, the majority decided to put out to sea. From there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, the harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck from the land, and when the ship was caught, it could not face the wind, and we gave way to it and were driven along. And running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship, and then, fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not have set sail from, a, from Crete and in, incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God whom I belong, or to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land, and so they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking escape from the ship and, and, and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes in the ship's boat and let it go. 
As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all taking some, to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food. I urge you to take some food, for, for it will give you strength, and not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God, and the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were safely brought to land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, there is a ton of detail in this account um, that it really makes an incredible account from our historian, Luke, who wrote this book. And, so, and within that, it's not gone without notice. There's a scholar named Thomas Walker who did extensive research and said that there is no such detailed record of the working of an ancient ship in the whole of classical literature. Now, remember, these are real places in, that, that still exist today. St. Paul's Bay on the island of Malta is still looked at as the place where this shipwreck happened and where they were washed ashore. Um, so we have a couple of maps, as we've done throughout Acts, to show you the places where these things happened. And so you can see that they left from Caesarea and stayed close to the land, and they went on the leeward side of these islands, which means away from the windward side, or where the wind would come in, and where the, sh- where the sea was rougher. And so they skirted behind these coastal islands, including Cyprus um, and, and others to, is, that were detailed in the account, in order to try to, and it was slow moving. Luke said that, that it, it just moved incredibly slowly. And Paul urged them then, saying, listen, we shouldn't go out. Don't, there's going to be injury, and there's going, to be, there's going to be much loss, not only of cargo, but of this ship, and possibly a loss of life. Now, we might think this is a little weird, because you have trained soldiers and experienced sailors, and so why would they listen to Paul anyway? But one commentator observed that when we follow Paul's journeys in the book of Acts, he may have been the most experienced traveler on board. That there's an estimate that he may have sailed as much as 3,800 miles over his travels. So he was saying, it's wintertime, this isn't good, this is going to go badly for us. But they set out from Crete anyway, and that's the next map that we have, um, which has a, kind of a backwards S shape because nobody actually knows where they sailed to next. They got hit by a storm, they're trying to hug the shore, but the northeast, no, nor'easter came and blew them away from the island, and we learned that it was two weeks that they were lost at sea. That they, it's a, it describes it for us that that they, there was neither, neither sun nor moon nor stars um, for many days and no small tempest lay on us. This is saying that there was such a storm that they lost all bearing on navigation. They didn't have the heavenly bodies in order to see how to navigate and even which direction they were going. So they started to take measurements of fathoms. A fathom is about six feet. 
And so it's still used in, in nautical terminology now. And so they, were, they would drop a weight on a rope to be able to see how deep of water they were in. And we learned that they were at 20 fathoms and then at 15. And so they knew, they just had a sense that land was coming. And so all of this, we have this great detail of, the, of this story of the shipwreck. There's a guy named James Smith that published a book, The Voyage and Shipwreck of St. Paul in 1848. So a long time ago. He was a soldier by profession and a yachtsman with over 30 years of experience on the water. He was an eminent geologist and geographer, and he um, concluded that this had to have been an eyewitness account and, so, and not from a sailor. And so we have a quote from him, which when you see a picture of James Smith, he could tell me anything about sailing, and I would believe him. <laughs> um, he looks like he spent his life fighting pirates. And so, but he, it, he said of this account, and he, he stayed and lived on Malta for a period of years to study weather patterns and try to understand what happened in this chapter of Acts. And he concluded this. He said, no sailor would have written in a style so little like that of a sailor. No man, not a sailor, could have written the narrative of a sea voyage so consistent in all its parts unless from actual observation. So he's saying, this sounds exactly like a guy who had no idea what he was doing on a vessel and also experienced it firsthand. And so we have these phases on this journey. There's, first of all, a denial of, of Paul's wisdom and advice. So the centurion denies him and says, no, 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 we're going to stick with the pilot of the boat who thinks he can bring us through. We have determination on the part of the sailors working and fighting and laboring, jettisoning their cargo, which you've got to understand that for the, the crew of a ship to start throwing their cargo overboard means they're taking a total loss on the journey. It had to have been, it had to have been a, a miserable storm for it to get to that point. And then you reach a point of despair. In verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was abandoned. All hope. But again, I think this is where it can help us. There are all kinds of storms that come into our lives. When, when the winds come against us and, and unpredictable changes lead to changes of course that we don't necessarily want, when, when bad decisions and groupthink can have a negative impact on us, and again, sometimes it's bad decisions we make that get us into, into waters that we don't want to be in, and sometimes it's not even us. Sometimes we see it coming and it's the bad decisions of other people that force us into situations that we don't want. And we fall into the same categories that we see here. There's times when, and, and for me, maybe you're more prone to one of these. I know that for me, I think I'm most prone to the determination aspect of saying like, I am going to work this out and I'm gonna figure it out and I'm gonna get things done. But I cycle through all these. From denial of just denying the reality of the circumstances around me, like the centurion, to determination like the sailors of trying to work things out and figure it out and accomplish what I need to, to times of despair like the defectors saying there's no hope of our saving. Let's get in the lifeboat and hope for the best. And so there's something we learn here. Paul came to them in the midst of all of that, and do you see what he says? I love this. He starts, he starts by saying, like, even the Apostle Paul, 
the guy that had, had the risen Lord Jesus appeared to and called into ministry, who the Lord Jesus had come to and said, you've got to go to Rome. The, the man who the night before had seen an angel, like that God himself was communicating and speaking to Paul directly. A man who wrote half our New Testament and that is a theological genius, and still the Apostle Paul stands up at the, at the end of this, and he begins with, I told you so. Like he couldn't resist it. He says, men, you should have listened to me. And not set sail. I told you there would be injury and loss. And look around us, there's injury and loss. Yet now I urge you, take heart. He says, you're not going to die. An angel came to me last night and said, said, you must go and stand before Caesar. And God has granted that you will live with me. And so take heart. He, report, he repeats it again. He, ha, he has decisive action. and says, things are going to go exactly as I've been told. I have faith that God is going to bring us through. I have the promise of Jesus that I'm clinging to. And so let's stay together. Then, you know, people are trying to abandon the ship. And they're like, <laughs> because it gets bad enough that as they know they're getting close to land, they put four anchors out off the rear of the ship, off the stern of the ship, to try to prevent running, in, running aground in the middle of the night in the dark. So they put four anchors out. And so I love that some of the soldiers are like, yeah, we'll get in the lifeboat and put out two more on the front of the ship, on the bow. And Paul says, you can't let them go. Let's stay together. And then he encourages everybody, take food. And there's this moment that has echoes of the Lord's Supper in it, even though Paul was with a bunch of not, people that don't believe or know Jesus. Like, he has to tell them when he stands up, hey, the, there's a God whom I serve and who, who, who I belong to. And he stands up, though, and he takes bread in the midst of them all and breaks it and gives thanks, encourages them to eat. See, Paul knew that when things didn't go as planned, God was still sovereign. And so he gives us an example of, that trusting God, what, of what trusting God looks like when the storms of our lives hit, when we fall into denial and determination and despair, when, when we don't know which way things are going, when it feels like we could say, hey, I've been out here for two weeks, lost at sea, and everything is dark, and I don't even know how to navigate this. And so there's a hope here that we can navigate the waters of our lives and the storms we face, and that trusting God and knowing that he's sovereign doesn't necessarily lead to inaction, but in that faith is not in opposition to common sense and wisdom. And so four lessons for us tonight um, for when storms come. The first is trust God's word. And Paul trusts God's word. He says, take heart. Why? Because the word of God had come to him directly. Now, this is, there's a theme that we've been following and it, it, that goes all the way through Luke and Acts, which are two books by the same author, volume one and volume two. And so this is the second volume of his work. And all the way through, there's a theme of necessity. And so this comes through in the words of Jesus, that Jesus talks about necessity regularly, saying, it is necessary for me to go to Jerusalem. It's necessary for me to be handed over it's, and arrested. It's necessary, Jesus says, for me to suffer and to die and it's necessary for me to be raised on the third day. Jesus told his disciples for a few years leading up to Jerusalem exactly what he was going to do, and somehow it still surprised everybody. And so he knew that Jesus knew that there was a divine necessity, that the mission he had been sent on was to accomplish the redemption of all people, and that could only happen through his own suffering and death in our place and through his resurrection, putting death to death, giving us hope for life. That theme of necessity is carried all the way through the book of Acts as well as we've seen the spirit of God poured out on the people of God and, and things along the way that people recognize it is necessary for us to do this. 
And Paul recognized that and that it was, there was a necessity for him to get to Rome. The same language is used in Acts 19, back when he was in Ephesus. He says, now after these, it says, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go on to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. It's necessary for me to see Rome. When Paul got to Jerusalem, he was arrested, just like his friends told him it would happen. He was arrested in the temple courts and and questioned in the temple courts, and then questioned before the Sanhedrin, the same council that had sentenced Jesus to his death. But that night when he was in prison alone, that, it says that that following night, the Lord, Jesus, stood by him and said, take courage, Paul. This is the same kind of language that Paul is now extending to the sailors. The, the courage that Jesus breathed into the apostles' heart, he was now calling those on the ship too in Acts 27, saying, take heart. God's word has come to me, and I have faith that he's going to carry us through, so take heart. And Jesus said to Paul, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And so this is the, the divine necessity here, and Paul knew that it, that it was necessary for him to get there, and so he had all confidence that he wasn't going to die out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, I know here, it's tough for us because we hear, I know I read this at least. I was reading this this past week and reading it and thinking about this and going, okay, that's great. So he had faith that God's promise was going to come true. But did you catch the detail that he says, an angel appeared to me this very night? So I have a tendency to read that and think, well, yeah, if I had a hard decision or if I was in a tough circumstance and an angel showed up, I don't know how I would know it was an angel, but Paul was confident it was an angel. You might think, well, that... Yeah, of course, it would give me greater confidence. And so, Lord, send an angel tonight to be able to tell me the, what you've promised to me. And that might be true. But have you ever been as scared in your life, as uncertain as your life, as what's described in this crew? Have you ever been out on the water and experienced moments where you feel out of control and exactly how small you are? It's... See, Paul's comments here, I think even what we need to understand is, yes, an angel came to him and said, don't be afraid, you must stand before Caesar. But do you see what Paul said? He says, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Even for Paul in that circumstance, it took faith to trust God's promise to him. We've been told, that, or we've been given the fullness of God's word in, in, a, in a completeness and perfection that even the apostle Paul didn't have. Hebrews 4 tells us that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it divides, penetrating even soul and spirit and joint and marrow, that God's word will expose the thoughts and intentions of our heart, but also then it points us to the hope that we have in a Savior who has gone before us so that we can trust that he will bring us safely into God's presence in the end. It doesn't mean it'll be easy, but it does mean that we can trust God's word. Church, for me, this, this story strikes like a, 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 a visceral level within me. Um, I've had the privilege to do some sailing in my life. Um, when I, so when Alyssa, my wife, was pregnant with Zoe, our oldest, who's going to turn 14 this week on Thursday. Um, and so if you, if you see Zoe around next Sunday, just say happy birthday to her. Um, she'll love that I just asked the whole church to do that, <laughs> um, as every 14-year-old girl would. Um, so when Alyssa was pregnant with Zoe, so a little over 14 years ago, um, my dad and I, my dad lives on a sailboat. 
and, um, and so he and I decided to go sailing together and to meet the family. And so he lived at that time just north of Tampa, Florida in a town called Tarpon Springs, and we sailed from Tarpon Springs to the Florida Keys and back. Um, I can't remember, but I think it was around 380 nautical miles each way. So for us, that meant three and a half to four days of sailing round the clock. And so we had, at that point, I mean, this is almost 15 years ago. I didn't have an iPhone. Um, cell service didn't extend far off the shoreline now. I don't know how far it does now, but, but we had a small GPS unit with an LCD screen that was about this big. And so that was what we were reliant on as we sailed through, even through the night. And um, so his boat was a 25 or 26-foot sailboat, which if you don't have any experience boating or don't know what that means, we're talking about a sailboat that was ab about the length of this stage. Um, and so not all that big for the undertaking we were about to be on. Paul's ship that he was on had to have been bigger because this would have been tight with four people, let alone 276. But we decided to go, and there were some of the moments that were idyllic, that it was sunny out in the Gulf of Mexico, we were sailing along, and porpoises were swimming alongside us, and we had lines in the water to catch fish, and we're eating, filleting and eating fish uh, you know, that we were cooking up on you know, down below deck in the little galley kitchen, and it was amazing, and there were moments like that, and that is all that Alyssa heard about for at least six months after the trip was done. Because there were also moments that I knew she would never let me go sailing again, which I kind of, I haven't, I guess, <laughs> um, since. And so it's some of those stories, and so there were many, there were several of these moments, but one in particular that I think, uh, that, that I think hits for what we're, we're talking about tonight. Um, the second night that we were under sail, we were south of Marco Island. And so we had just come off kind of hugging the shore like it is described in Acts. And we got to Marco Island. We knew that we had to cut out from the shore a little because in the south end of Florida, the Bay of Florida, cuts, the coastline cuts in, and that's incredibly shallow through there. So you have to be farther offshore than you'd expect in a sailboat. And so we, we were about four hours of sailing south of Marco Island. It was 2.30 at night. You couldn't see the shoreline because it's really dark out in the water, but it was a fairly clear night. It was getting, the wind was kicking up, which is good for sailing, but it's always like the level of the waves is also complicating. And so every once in a while, you could see the flicker of a town or a city on the horizon, but we were pretty far offshore. And at 2.30 at night, it was my turn. We took three-hour shifts at the tiller, and my dad was below deck sleeping, and I was following. He had navigated this before, and so we, on the GPS, there was a line that was the course that he had plotted and gone through, and so we figured, well, even at night, if we stick to that course, we should be fine. The waves kicked up to five or six feet, which means waves that from crest to trough are about as high as I am tall. And at 2.30 in the morning, I was sailing along and navigating the waves and trying to feel the waves under sail and doing that without any real visual cues. And all of a sudden, we hit ground. And we're, we're out of sight of shore at 2.30 in the morning, in the middle of the night. And the boat went up five feet or so. And then we hit ground again. And my dad spun out of his bunk and staring up at me from down below. And said, What's going on? I was like, I don't know. And um, I don't know if you know this, but GPS uses triangulation, so you need to be moving a direction for it to show you which direction you're facing. And I looked down at the GPS screen, and it was spinning. And that was a moment where we, we had to act quickly and decisively because we could have had our ship, our boat, break up in the middle of the Gulf, and no one would have known that it happened. It was the middle of the night. 
we had been, I'd been watching the compass and knew the bearing that we had, and so I managed to get the boat turned, and we hit five times total on the sandbar. Thank God it wasn't a reef line. And then after the fifth hit, we were back into deep water. And then we had a decision to make. What do we do now? We, we could go on and hope that it doesn't happen again, but what we had realized was that the charts that we had couldn't have been true. The charts that we had showed that we should have been in 20 to 30 feet of water. It should have been three to four fathoms at that spot. And all of a sudden, so a five-foot wave shouldn't make a difference. And, but we knew that something was wrong, and so at that moment, we made a decision that we were going to lose the time and, and cut our losses on that, that we, we did some inspections and realized that the boat was going to be okay, and so we sailed back to Marco Island, which was a four-hour sail back, and we got there um, before the marina even opened, and we went in and started talking with the, with the guys at the marina, and we realized, they asked the date that our charts had been made, and what they explained to us was that hurricanes had come through since the charts that we had were made, and that hurricanes shift the sands in the Bay of Florida, so our charts were no longer accurate. So they gave us a new chart and gave us some recommendations, some wisdom on the path that we should chart after that, and so we continued on our trip after. Now, I say all this to say, for, first, I can relate to the fear of the sailors here in that kind of moment of not knowing if you're really going to make it through, and, that, and, and the faith that it takes to believe the promise that you are, but the, the, the truthfulness and the accuracy of the charts that we had was what we were completely reliant on on our journey. Now, this is good news for us if we actually believe what the Bible says about itself. And because what we can see in what we've been given in God's word is that this book plums the depths of and fathoms of all of reality and all of human experience and for thousands of years has been proven trustworthy and true. And so what we've been given, we can trust, will lead us safely to the end, even if we have to navigate through some storms in our lives. But what we've been given is a true chart. We can trust God's word when the storms come. Second, when storms come, be wise. Paul here, I think, and this is important for us, Paul is a brilliant theologian, but he also has practical wisdom. He, the sailors here had all kinds of knowledge. They knew how to tie the knots. They knew how to navigate the waters. They knew, uh, they knew what they were doing practically in, in accomplishing their jobs. But there was wisdom that Paul was able to apply his knowledge and, and apply his wisdom. And so at first they didn't listen to it. But then he stands up and says, hey, you didn't listen to me. I told you this was going to be a problem. But now... Hear me, take heart. Here's what God has said to me. I'm confident we're going to come through to the end, but here's the things we need to do. He tells them, don't let people split apart. We've got to stay together. They start taking soundings, and so they, they make a plan that, that next morning, and, and the next morning they, they carry that out. He stops them and says, hey, take some time and actually eat. It had been 14 days since they'd eaten a meal. Which I think you can, we hear, I hear that and go, oh gosh, I don't like to make it 14 hours. Like intermittent fasting is hard just when I wake up and skip breakfast. But 14 days, but if you, again, if you've ever been on a boat, I, I've not been experienced seasickness a lot, but in that situation, you can understand if you've experienced seasickness why they would have wanted nothing to do with eating. And so Paul says, no, you've got to have some energy. 
He has practical wisdom to say, he doesn't just take the food for himself. He has practical wisdom to extend that to everybody around him and say, we've got to eat if we've got to be ready for the morning. And when morning comes, we've got to be decisive and take action. He has practical wisdom that he applies here. You know, this was for us, for my dad and I, decisions that we had to make, just the two of us, as we got back into deep water. Once we caught our breath and settled ourselves down to have a discussion, you know, he looked at me and he said, you know, I wasn't worried. I was like, that's false. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean you don't worry? He's like, so I was just finishing up seminary and had a baby on the way. And he said, no, nah, I wasn't worried because I believe that God has a plan for you. I was like, oh, dad. <laughs> um, you know, it, wouldn't, it would have been a bad situation, though, if we would have slapped that kind of, just rested in that kind of language which, and said, you know what? We're not worried about this. God's got a plan for Bill's life, and uh, let's just go, keep going. Play on. That would have been a bad decision. That wouldn't have been wise. Even in the midst of faith, sometimes we need wisdom in our lives, and I think that we need to hear this because we, Christians can be terrible about this about slapping spiritual language onto either a lack of, of action and immediacy in our lives or slapping spiritual language onto, onto just poor decision-making and saying, well, I really feel like God wants me to do this. And you know, why? What makes you believe that? You know, we have the truth of his word that, that we can trust, and then we need wisdom to apply it to life. And so, so yeah, we, we sailed back to Marco Island and lost time. And we got new charts and had, the, had fresh wisdom on how to navigate the waters. And it meant that we had to swing 50 miles offshore in order to avoid the shallows again. And so we did. Um, and, and, it, but, and so it was a hard decision to make, but it was the wise decision to make. And so in the storms of our lives, we have a chart we can trust in God's word, and we have all the right information, um, but, that does, but all that information doesn't matter if we don't apply it in our lives, and that's, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. So don't find yourself in a situation where you're filled with theological knowledge that you haven't allowed to come into your heart so that it works itself out practically in your life. And I know here, I want to be careful in... The, in, you know, we, can, we can theologically be very correct sometimes and not want to get too much into moralism. And yes, there's nothing that we can earn, do to earn God's favor. And yes, there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. It is only in the finished work of Jesus Christ that we are saved. And yes, it is only God's work. And, I, and, and the theological streams that I, ha, that I swim in are very good at proclaiming the sovereignty of God and the glory of God and the majesty of God and making sure that we don't allow pride to, keep it, to creep in. And we, we love Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that, that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith and it's not anything that we've done so that no one can boast. And all of that is true. And still, God also calls us to, to follow him. He calls us to holiness. He, Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him as we spent time looking at last week. And Peter calls us to live as sojourners and exiles and to live lives that, that live so well that, so that other people will turn and worship Jesus with us. And so there is a practical reality that yes, God is sovereign and good and we can trust his word and we are called to apply it with wisdom. Third, when the storms come, take action. There are times to be patient and to sit back, and there are times to take action. 
God's sovereignty doesn't negate our responsibility. Now, again, Paul was, he, he didn't, he brought up his opinions early on, but, but then when it got to the point of life versus death, he did stand up and was decisive in the, mo- in the moment. And we need to hear this too. We can have a tendency, and so again, for us, when, when we were south of Marco Island, we could have just decided, okay, you know what? We're running aground right now. Why don't we have a discussion about how we got into this circumstance and whose fault it is and how we could have changed it? And instead it was like, no, we're, we, we're going to die. We've got to get off of this sandbar. There's a practical wisdom that comes to an immediacy at points in our lives. And we need to hear this. This is important because we can have a tendency, all of us, to approach life dualistically. I think even within the church, we don't realize sometimes how much of a hold Greek philosophy can have on Christian theology. And so we can have a tendency to look at the physical world as, as negative and the spiritual world as our pursuit, as if the two are strictly divided. And so we read passages in Scripture about, about the fallenness and brokenness of our flesh and can read that as literally our bodies and, and then say we need to escape these bodies so that we can experience heaven. And so that's why if you go to a funeral, so often people talk vaguely about heaven. And people are, well, I know they're up there looking down at us now. And I, you know, they're, I'm confident they're in heaven. And, and, and yes, there's something there that, that the scripture tells us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But, but remember that God made this place, that he is the creator of all things and that he made it and, and declared it good that we're told in Romans 8 that all of creation is groaning and longing for the day of its redemption. And the image we have of eternity in the end is a renewed and restored heavens and earth, that it's, it's a physical reality, that you have been made body and soul by God and that you will spend eternity body and soul either in God's blessed presence or away from him in judgment. But we are eternal beings, and we will have resurrected bodies, eternal bodies as well. And so there are times when we allow that dualistic perspective to creep in so that we we come to despise the physical world, and we come to despise our physical bodies. You need to hear, though, that God cares about what happens here. And that to remove the physical need from spiritual reality is a pagan view, not a Christian view. That, and, and Jonah had that view. If you remember the, the book of Jonah and the prophet Jonah, um, that it's always amazing to me when people will choose like Jonah and Noah's Ark for like nurseries. These are stories of God's judgment and destruction that we put up in colorful pictures on children's walls. Look at that guy. He was swallowed by a whale. <laughs> Um, and then waited for Nineveh to burn in God's judgment. Like, he was not a good guy. Like, Noah, look at this with all the happy animals. And it's like, yeah, and he wiped out humanity from the face of the earth to start fresh. Um, total aside, sorry about that. <laughs> um, if you've decorated your nursery that way, uh, it's gonna, it might, might scare your child later on when they figure out what it meant. Um, <laughs> um, Jonah, in that story, Jonah hated the pagan sailors that he was on a ship with. He hated the Ninevites, and Jonah would have rather died than to see the people that he hated saved by God or forgiven by God. 
And it gets to that in chapter 4. He says that explicitly. And so, when, so Jonah, when called by God, get up, go to Nineveh and, and cry out my word to them, Jonah got up and went down from Jerusalem to Joppa and down from Joppa onto a ship and then down below deck on the ship. And it's a similar account. They get out into the Mediterranean Sea. The storm hits. The wind and the waves kick up. The sailors are freaking out. They're throwing the cargo overboard, just like in Acts chapter 27. And in the midst of all of that, Jonah does stand up decisively to say, hey, God's going to bring us through this. Even though you don't see an opportunity for salvation, God is the one who saves, and there is hope for us. What Jonah does is he goes to sleep. And when the, when the captain of the crew comes down and says to Jonah, what are you doing? Get up and help us. And they're throwing the cargo overboard. Jonah stands up and, and says, oh, why don't you just kill me and throw me overboard? You'll probably be fine. That's why, I mean, we look at the whale as great salvation. I think Jonah did. I think that was actually God's judgment of saying, you didn't get out of this that easy. You're still going to Nineveh. But Jonah had a strange view that, that, that he was unwilling to take action to help anybody else to save or save the ship that he was on. The Apostle Paul here stands, he cared about those who were with him and said to them, take some food, you need your energy, you need, to, you need to fuel your bodies and prepare them for the next day. And he wanted to see everyone come through safely. And so it gives us an example here that when storms come into our lives, again, not necessarily physical storms, but anything that we face when we're lost and trying to navigate it to trust God's word, to be wise in applying it, and then to take action for our own good and for the good of the people that are around us. And then fourth and finally, turn to the Lord of the storm. This is amazing to me that all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And how does the, the story end? The soldiers wanted to kill the, the prisoners from having them escape, but, but wishing to save Paul, the, the centurion kept him from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first to make for the land and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Do you notice that even that part didn't go how they planned it? They're like, okay, in the morning when we can see where we're navigating, we can see the land, we're going to cut loose the anchors. They'd already cut loose the boat that could save some of them. They were like, we're in this together. We're going to cut loose the anchors. We're going to loosen the rudders so that we can actually steer them. They, they would bind them up during a storm. So loosen those up. We're going to steer and make for the beach. The plan was to beach the ship so that everybody could get out safely. And even that, they run into a reef line. And so they're, they're clinging to pieces of the boat when they make it in. But every single person was brought safely to land. I know that some of you feel like your lives are in a shipwreck right now. And I don't know what all of you are facing, but, but I know that some of you are barely hanging on. I know that some of you have come through stories like this in your life. And so maybe it's not right now, but you've been there and you're looking back at it. And for some of you, we don't know what's going to happen this week, this month, this year, and what, what storms are going to come. The times when it feels like the winds are just against you and, and blowing you off course, when there are unpredictable changes that change the course of your life and bad decisions that have an impact on you and lack of provision and threats from people around you who would like to see you dead. Do you see this? Paul is in the midst of saving everybody on the ship, and even in the midst of that, they're ready to kill him as a prisoner to make sure he doesn't escape. 
people are abandoning you at the hardest moment, like these guys saying, yeah, we're going to go and tie up some anchors on the bow. And Paul says, no, you know, you're not. Let's cut the boat loose. In the midst of all of it, what I want you to know and to hear tonight is that Jesus is Lord over the wind and the waves. In Luke chapter 8, Luke had, uh, had written this story of of Jesus with his disciples. He said on one day he got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and this is the Sea of Galilee. And they they were filling with water and were in danger. And they woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Jesus, this story is fascinating because he's sleeping in the back of the boat and the disciples wake him up and they they go running to him because they don't know what to do and the boat's filling with water and it feels like they're going to die, like it's all over and they're going to lose the boat and they're going to lose their lives and and Jesus is, is, is able to stand up in the boat after they wake him up and just say, shh. And everything stops. He has the power and authority to calm the wind and the waves. And he asks the disciples, where is your faith? And I don't, I don't hear that. I used to read that as like uh, an angry comment of, why'd you wake me up? Maybe that's just because I'm a dad with kids. <laughs> that's how I usually wake up is, ah, why'd you wake me up? But I don't read it that way. I read it now with Jesus, with compassion, saying, okay, what, what are you trusting in? I think he's, saying, he's asking, do you really think that this is going to derail God's plan? He's saying, you've identified that, you know, they're on the path of identifying that he's the Messiah. They've seen him perform miracles. He said, do you think that this is going to end it? Do you think some bad weather is enough to stop God's intention? Do you think this patch and experience of your life is powerful enough to remove you from God's plan and his love? I think Jesus is asking him, do you really think that I'm unconcerned about you? That this moment shows that I don't love you? I think Jesus is calling them to self-reflection of saying, what are you afraid of and where does your trust lie? He's asking the question, and I think that it seems harsh to us, but let's remember here that the best decision the disciples made in this moment was that that when they ran out of their own capacity to deal with the storm that they were in, they ran straight to one they knew could save them. And so if you're in the middle of a storm in your life today, I want you to hear this, that they ran straight to Jesus and his ability to save them was not dependent on the the beauty of their response or the clumsiness of it. It wasn't dependent on the quality of their understanding or the the quantity of their faith. No, no, no. They, They ran straight to the one who could save them and he stood up and brought their salvation. And so if you're in the midst of a storm today, run to Jesus. He is the one with the power to save you. You don't have to worry about getting all the words right or the the quality of your faith. His response is not going to be dependent on you other than you turning to him to say, Lord, I need your help. His power is not limited by your circumstances. And 
Some of you are, are in that storm tonight, and it feels like God is asleep. And so I, I want to encourage you, run to him, cry out for help, cry to him, and he will save you because he loves you. I've heard Tim Keller say that, that nobody wakes up a king to ask a king for anything, let alone like for a glass of water, except for the king's child, who can wake them up in the middle of the night for a glass of water and be received with compassion from a father. Through Christ, we have access to the King, our God. Jesus is Lord over the storm, and he is powerful and able to help. And if he is with us, then we have nothing to fear, no matter how small our capacity, no matter how small and finite our knowledge, no matter, no matter how small the boat or, no, or how large the storm. Through Christ, we can trust that when storms come, we can trust God's word and respond with wisdom and to take action, but ultimately it all turns on turning to the Lord of the storm. That in the unexpected turns our journeys take, let's remember that God is sovereign and good and take heart. We have a great Savior who will bring us safely to the end. It might not go how we want it to, and we might be clinging to the planks of wood of our shattered ambitions. But he'll bring us safely to the end. Trusting that God's word will equip us to be wise and to take action and to do the good that God has called us to do. Trusting in all of it that God who began a good work in us in Christ will be faithful to bring it to completion. Let's pray. Father, we need your help in this. Because we get scared. I get scared, Lord, and I need your help. Lord Jesus, we trust that you are the Lord over the wind and waves and over the things that are in our lives that strike fear into us. And so I pray tonight, I pray for those who are here, who are, who are in the middle of a storm. They, they've lost the ability to navigate what they're walking through and the, the waters are choppy and dangerous. And I pray that you would move by your spirit to bring hope and peace and life. We pray Father, that you would draw our hearts to trust you and your word, to respond with wisdom and to take action. But, but I pray right now for those who have not come, into, in, come to you for their salvation, that you would give them confidence and hope when it seems like all hope might be lost, that they would be saved. That by your spirit, you would breathe life and courage to run to our Savior for help. Know that the Lord Jesus alone has power to save us. As we pray in his name, amen.